Many of you I know are familiar with the man John Bunyan. Uh, he was, of course, a, a Baptist minister in the mid-1600s in England. And uh, he wrote a book that I know many of you have also read called The Pilgrim's Progress. And that book is actually one of the best-selling books in the entire world. It, all the books, uh, it's, it's right up there. Um, 250-ish million copies sold, which is obviously a lot of books. Um, and it has helped encourage believers ever since it was first published. It was published 341 years ago in 1678 and it has never been out of print. It has always been available. It's been translated into over 200 different languages. So it's been encouraging Christians for almost 350 years in at least 200 plus different cultures and tongues. Uh, and so, I mean, it's just an incredible uh, book that's been incredibly blessed and helpful to the Lord's people. And if we didn't know much about Bunyan, we might uh, imagine him spending his days in his nice, quiet study, perhaps, uh, you know, a wealthy man who's able to just devote his time to thinking and devote his time to the study of God's Word and carefully craft this whole uh, story, this book, uh, that would be so helpful. Um, but that's not a, at all how it worked, and uh, some of you probably know the story, but uh, he, he was a, a man of poverty, and he married a woman who was likewise poor, but they were converted to Christ. And uh, eventually he would start preaching, and he would be arrested and uh, tried and sent to prison for preaching the gospel as a nonconformist, not part of the Anglican church. And he went to prison, and, sh and not long afterwards, his wife gave birth to a stillborn child, and... Uh, and um, he, he was reduced to making, trying to make some shoelaces to support his family, uh, a meager income that would be. And in fact, they got by mainly because of the generosity of the Lord's people uh, who would help them and support them. He was repeatedly told throughout his, his imprisonment that he could go free if he would just simply not preach the gospel. He could just be gone. He could be done with it. And you can imagine the, the temptation, the pressure to do that, right? Go take care of your family. You can be out of here. Just don't preach that message. You can even just be a Christian. Just keep it to yourself and uh, don't act on these convictions you have. But he could not abide that. And so he remained. He remained in prison for 12 years. Now, he did have some ability to come and go, depending on the mood of the, 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 the jail keeper. Um, but he was nevertheless confined for the better part of those 12 years he was in jail because of his biblical convictions and it was there that he began to write and it was there that he began to write the pilgrim's progress he was eventually released and he went on to pastor but he once again was sentenced back to prison for about six months later on for very similar reasons many christians would love to have the influence of a John Bunyan. We would look at that and think, wow, I would love to have that, like, to that kind of fruitfulness. Centuries after we're gone, you know, to still be teaching people through our books or whatever. But how many of us would also be willing to take his sufferings? And this goes for so many Christians that we tend to look up to from the past and admire uh, they did great things, they had lasting fruitfulness in their ministries, but they also, to a man, to a woman, suffered greatly for it. 
persecuted, various types of suffering. Uh, many ministers and pastors would love the influence of a Charles Spurgeon, but again, how many of us would likewise take all of his despises that he suffered during his day? We live in a time today when many Christians seem to think that persecution is really a sign that you're doing things all wrong. And that if we really just loved people as Jesus did, then we would be loved in return by the world. That people would think well of us. And that if there's people angry at us or don't like us for something, then it's a sign that we're doing things wrong. And this simply uh, could not be any further from the truth. This is not what the Bible teaches. This is not what the Lord himself Jesus teaches us, um, this is not what he shows us in his life. As we turn again to Luke chapter 21, I'll invite you to, to turn back there. Uh, we see here the Lord himself teaching us that persecution awaits those who follow him. So as we continue in, in this chapter, in, in Luke 21, in this Olivet Discourse, uh, just just reminder before we launch into the verses here where Jesus teaches us about persecution and prepares us for this, um, we're seeing in this chapter Jesus predicting or prophesying about the future. And if you'll recall from last week, uh, he's prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem that was coming in the year 70 AD. And we know that took place. But this event also serves as a type of the final judgment. It is, it is also foreshadowing what's going to happen at the end. As, and as he speaks of, of the signs that will lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem, these are also uh, things that are going to continue to happen throughout the history of the church that will lead up to the time when the Lord Jesus would return and there would be the final judgment. And what we looked at last week was how Jesus' teaching on these matters uh, lovingly and helpfully prepares his church, both uh, his church in the first century leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, but also his church beyond the first century, including us today, as we live in anticipation of Christ's return. And in this, he speaks of signs, uh, that is, things that will occur which remind us that Jesus' return is coming. Uh, last week we looked at the first three signs in verses 8 to 11, namely the presence of false teachers, the presence of wars, and the presence of disaster. And we talked then about how when we see these things happening and we look out, it's a reminder to us uh, that ultimate and final judgment is coming one day, that every person is going to stand before the Lord. It is a reminder that he is indeed going to return and Jesus is telling us these things that we might remain steadfast, that we might not be thrown off and rattled and caught off guard and surprised by all of these things, that we wouldn't be uh, dismayed by false teachers who might even make predictions about what certain disasters mean. He tells us what these things point to, that we live in a fallen world that awaits God's judgment and therefore we need to flee to Christ for forgiveness for reconciliation with God. And so today, as we get to verse 12, uh, we come to the fourth sign. The fourth sign, which is the presence of persecution. And as with the previous signs we saw last week, Jesus is again preparing us, or still preparing us, 
for what is coming. And he's preparing his church specifically to endure persecution, that we might remain steadfast when it comes. So I want to read, um, starting again in verse 5, and we'll read through to 19, and then we'll focus on verses 12 to 19. So I'll invite you to read with me Luke 21 and verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. So again, in verses 12 to 19, Jesus is preparing his church to endure persecution. And the first way that he does this is that the Lord prepares us to endure by speaking plainly about the reality of persecution. Imagine if the Bible enticed us to Christianity on the promise of an easy life and that everything's going to go well and everything's going to be victorious, everything's going to work out just fine in this life, and then persecution came and suffering came. We would be completely dismayed by this. It would be, in fact, deceptive of God to draw us on a lie. That would be a lie. This would be incredibly unhelpful at best. But this is not what God does. This is not what the Bible teaches. And, and though some people think that way and, 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 and believe that to be the case that everything will work out for the believer, everything will be good and happiness, all their days will just be, you know, life will be easy. Uh, They arrive there not because they're reading the Bible very carefully, uh, or they're arriving there, you know, because they're being very poorly taught. But here the Son of God speaks very plainly about the fact that persecution will come. And this is to our benefit. So if you look again at verse 12, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. So Jesus is speaking specifically here to the disciples, and he plainly tells them, they will lay their hands on you and they will persecute you. It's no uncertain terms. In fact, he says there at the beginning of verse 12, before all this, meaning... Uh, before they have a chance to even witness the 
previous three signs we looked at last week in verses 8 to 11, before there's a chance for false teachers to arise, before there's a chance for to hear of wars and tumults and rumors of wars, and before all these earthquakes they're going to hear about and live, in other words, right out of the gate, you're going to be suffering persecution. Right at the start. And this is, of course, exactly what we see in the book of Acts. Uh, it's in chapter 4 where we see Peter and John arrested. Uh, they spend the night in jail, then they're brought before the scribes and Pharisees to give an account. And then after that, persecution just continues throughout the book of Acts for the Lord's people. Jesus says here in verse 12, they will lay their hands upon you. So that's, that's forcefully seizing them and, and arresting them. He says delivering you up. So they're, they're then handing them over to synagogues, to prisons, kings, governors. This implies maybe a trial of sorts, especially as we get into the next couple verses. Uh, this is being brought before those who are in positions of authority who could do us either harm or good. Being delivered over to such people. Uh, and then Jesus describes, he clarifies the difference between being arrested for uh, you know, being a lawless criminal and persecution. What's the difference? Well, he says, these things will happen to his disciples for my name's sake, on account of my name, because of me, because you believe in me. And this is what persecution is. It's suffering for being a Christian. It's suffering for doing and for saying and for believing what God tells us to do and to say and believe. It is a suffering for righteousness' sake. Now, I think it's helpful uh, to clarify here uh, one point, and that is that sometimes, sometimes persecutors will um, persecute explicitly because somebody's a Christian, and it's very clear the suffering is for Christ's sake. But often, uh, the accusations are a lot more muddled than that. Uh, often, the, the accusations are bringing in many other charges. It's not just that you're a Christian, it's that you're really disturbing the people. You're disturbing the peace. Uh, you, you think of Ahab accusing Elijah of being the troubler of Israel. Right? You're upsetting people, you're troubling people. That's the real problem with you. So it's not just that maybe you worship Christ, it's that you won't worship our gods as well. Or you won't approve of our actions and, and, and your not approving of us is disturbing society. It's hateful to people. It's troubling other people's consciences and it's upsetting them. And that's really the main problem here. And so they'll, the accusation, of course, you've watched this play out. You've been accused of these things. It's hatred, right? You hate people. That's the problem. In Daniel's day, a law was created so as to nail Daniel. Right? The people, he's in exile, they despise Daniel, so they actually very carefully and craftily develop a way to have the king sign a law that is essentially just creating the noose for Daniel, and of course Daniel walks into it by continuing to pray. Of course the Lord miraculously delivered Daniel in that time. In our time, again, hate speech laws, they threaten to potentially do the same thing for us. Right, where an environment is created where the very words that we must say, the very beliefs that we must believe, are considered hateful. 
and we don't know where this all goes, but if you say the wrong thing in the wrong place, you can be punished for that. And of course, it won't be stated, well, it's because you're a Christian. No, it'll be because you say hateful things. So often the, the accusations get convoluted. We see this in Scripture. Paul, when he's arrested at the end of Acts, the accusation against him before Felix in chapter 24 was this. We have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. So notice just that picture of accusation against him. He's a ringleader of this sect, so yeah, he's a, he's a Christian, but much more than that. He stirs things up everywhere he goes, riots everywhere. He profanes the temple. Do you, you think these people really cared that there's riots in places he goes? Right? The Jews themselves, these, these people would very soon, within a number of years, be in full-on revolt against Rome. Is their main concern that there's some disturbance of the peace in Ephesus? That's really what they're after. And so we just, hey, for the good of those people, arrest these men. No, ultimately underneath that, they despise Christ. And that's why they're handing Paul over. Of course, stirring up riots is a convenient excuse. If, in fact, they can be found guilty of that, that's a reason the Romans might pay attention to this man, right? A reason they might want to put him away, kill him, put him in prison, whatever it might be. When Paul makes his defense, he denies these things. He denies that he's committed any offense against the law of the Jews. He denies that he's done anything against the temple. He was there. He was ceremonially clean at the time. He's not committed any treason against Caesar. He makes these claims in chapter 25. He knows why he's on trial. He's on trial because of the gospel, because he preaches the gospel. It's clouded with other things, but he will bring it back to the main point, which we'll get back to in just a moment. But persecution, it was not just something that the disciples went through prior to the year 70 AD, prior to the temple being destroyed. It continues, and it will continue until the end. All throughout the New Testament, we see disciples, Christians being warned about this, being told about this, being exhorted to stay the course. Revelation 6.11 speaks of the full number of martyrs who will come in before Jesus will return in vengeance. Uh, Paul's warning to 2 Timothy, or what he tells 2 Timothy in chapter 3, verse 12, says that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not just unique to the twelve. Now it's true that it comes in different ways, it comes in different forms, it comes in different levels of intensity. It doesn't always take the same form. Uh, even now, as we are gathered here, it takes, depending on where you are in the world right this moment, if you are a follower of Christ, you're going to face it in different ways and to different degrees. But it will come. And we should not be surprised by this. Uh, Jesus very kindly teaches us this, tells us this, prepares us for this. And he gives us some of the rationale as well. And we read uh, earlier from John 15 and 16, where he's telling us if they persecuted him, they will do the same to us. If they hated him, they will do the same to us. They will hate us as well. It's crazy 
to think that if they would hate and crucify the perfect image bearer of God the Father and despise him and hate him, the one who was perfectly loving, perfectly righteous, spoke nothing but true words with the proper tone at all times, and yet they nailed him to a tree. It's crazy to think that we, who far, far less perfectly will ever image God Almighty, would somehow escape a similar sort of treatment. This is a kindness that Jesus would forthrightly speak about this difficult matter. We have the opportunity, as he instructs us, to fortify the defenses of our hearts in preparation for this. We live in a society which it would seem has had the restraining of God increasingly lifted. I'm not a prophet. I don't know where this will all end up. But this text tells us that we should not be surprised if persecution would get worse yet. It's here now in different forms, certainly. But we should not be surprised if it even got worse. And yet, as troubling as that can be to us, this is not a time to panic. It is a time to hear these words of our Lord and take them to heart and to prepare ourselves in the truth of this. Jesus is preparing us here by speaking plainly about this matter to us. But that's not all he does to prepare us. Secondly, the Lord prepares us to endure by telling us one of the purposes of persecution. It's helpful sometimes to know why, or to at least know a little bit of why something's happening. And he tells us at least one reason why this happens, or one of the purposes of persecution. Look at verse 13. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Jesus says that when the disciples would be seized, when they'd be arrested, and they'd be handed over, persecuted, brought before various governing bodies, this would be their opportunity to bear witness. Now that word bear witness is the word for testimony, to testify. It's the word that Jesus used in Acts 1.8 before his ascension when he tells the disciples that they were to be his witnesses all throughout the world, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They were all to be his witnesses. They're to testify to him. It's testifying to, to the gospel, to Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection for sinners that Everyone who repents of their sin and trusts in the Lord Jesus can be forgiven of their sin, can be reconciled to God. This is what bearing witness is. And persecution provides an opportunity, a unique opportunity, to proclaim the gospel, to be a witness. In fact, the Greek word here is marturion, which is where we get the word martyr from. Right? A martyr is one who bears witness to Christ with their very life. The persecution is intended, typically, to snuff out the gospel, to snuff out any memory of Christ, to silence this. But in God's divine wisdom, it is an opportunity to further scatter the seed. We see this again in the book of Acts. We see Peter and John being hauled in before the Sanhedrin, and what do they do? They proclaim Christ. 
We see Paul over and over again giving testimony to the gospel before various rulers and various kings. Wherever he is, it's an opportunity for him to preach to new people. He's charged with rioting, as I said earlier, but he preaches Christ. You see this in Acts 26, especially when he's hauled before Agrippa, finally. And he gets to testify, and he's being accused of all these things, and what does he do? He starts to preach Christ. He's trying to persuade Agrippa to believe the gospel. He knows why he's there. He's there to bear witness. In fact, earlier in Acts 23, after, Jesus has been, or after Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem, it says in, in 23.11, The following night the Lord stood by him and said to Paul, Take courage, for you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul's being arrested, Paul's being persecuted, was the means by which God was having the gospel proclaimed in Jerusalem to these kings and rulers, and also, ultimately, in Rome. And of course, we know from... Philippians 4 and verse 22, that there were some in Caesar's own household who believed. And so even as persecution came, this was an opportunity to bear witness. The disciples of the Lord took opportunity of this. They, they were faithful in this, and the gospel continued to spread. And it was, again, not just the twelve. It was not just Paul in chapter 8, verse 1 and 2 of Acts. We're told there arose on that great that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. This is after Stephen's stoning. Then in verse 4 we're told, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Stephen's about to be stoned. He's called to account. What does he do? He starts preaching the truth. And then those who are scattered are also gone, have also gone out preaching the word of God. So persecution is a chance to testify in both word and deed. When someone endures suffering because they will not renounce Christ, it preaches well the worth and the glory of Christ and His gospel. When somebody proclaims Christ crucified, proclaims redemption and forgiveness of sins in His name, and then is willing to suffer and, and, and suffer greatly to not renounce that claim and not compromise that claim, those two things wed well and form a powerful witness, a powerful testimony. Tertullian famously said that the blood of the martyrs is seed. That is, as people watch Christians suffer, it's a powerful testimony to the truth of the gospel, and the church often grows through that. He was addressing why it was that even as much persecution was uh, evident throughout the Roman Empire, and Christians are being hauled into the stadium and, and being killed in many different places, why is it that this religion continues to grow? And he's saying the blood of the martyrs is seed. It continues to grow because people see this testimony in ordinary people not willing to compromise, joyfully walking to their deaths, and that weds with the truth of their claims and, and it increased in conversions, people believing the gospel. And we see some of that as well in the book of Acts, again, through Paul and, and others. As they're persecuted, the seed continues to grow and the church spreads. I do think it's important to just add a note that 
I don't think this means that every time there's an act of persecution, that means that the church will grow numerically. Um, Jesus does not promise that here. Uh, we've seen that happen. You see that in Acts. We've seen that at various points in history. Tertullian was pointing to that in his uh, quote from earlier. Uh, but that's not guaranteed to happen. The Lord will certainly build His church. It's a guarantee that His ultimate plans will not be thwarted. But what God chooses to do with our testimony, if we're being persecuted and we're bearing witness to Christ as we are being persecuted, what God chooses to do with that testimony is ultimately up to Him. But we're all, we are told, clearly, that persecution provides an opportunity to bear witness. And so we can rejoice. We can rejoice that ultimately God's plan will not be thwarted. That even as persecution occurs, uh, this, God is still fulfilling His purposes. He's still having His gospel proclaimed, even as people are suffering for it. And as we suffer for Christ's sake, it's an opportunity and it's a chance for us to, to even clarify the issue and proclaim the true nature of what's going on. So, for example, even if someone wanted to say to you that you are just a hateful person because you will not approve of other people's sinful lifestyles, and, and the issue is really that you're some angry, hateful person, that's an opportunity for us to clarify the real issue here of what's going on. That, in fact, we live in this fallen world, that this is sin, and this is why we simply cannot approve of this. And then calling people to repentance and faith in Christ. Jesus prepares us to endure persecution by giving us this divine purpose in it. That it's an opportunity to bear witness to Christ. Thirdly, the Lord prepares us by giving us the promise of aid in our proclamation. He gives the promise of aid in our proclamation. It could be unsettling. I think it's easy to... I think this is safe to say that it is unsettling at the thought of being tried or the thought of being called to account before some people who might seem to be great persons or powerful people in society, especially if they have authority over us in some way to decide whether we live or die or prison or not prison. That's not a very pleasant thought to think of having to testify before such a group of people. But Jesus says this in verse 14, Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So he's told us this is an opportunity to bear witness. And now he tells us, because of this, settle it therefore in your mind not to meditate beforehand how to answer. Now that word meditate, I think, might confuse the matter a little bit. It means... He's talking about preparing beforehand your verbal defense. Um, Daryl Bach, in his commentary, says that this word that's translated meditate here or prepare is a technical term for practicing a speech or rehearsing a dance. Uh, in, in Mark's version of this, it says, do not be anxious beforehand. And so I'd suggest that what Jesus is getting at here is that the disciples were not to fret and they were not to worry in advance about what on earth they would say when the time came and they were hauled before these councils and before these governors. 
Again, it's easy to see how they might do this. If you know that one day this is coming, you're one of these people Jesus is addressing here, and you're waiting the day you're going to be hauled before and given up, and, and what in the world am I going to say? And you'd, if you're like me, your wheels would turn over and over, and you'd have trouble sleeping, and you'd be a wreck about it. Jesus is offering words of comfort. He's not promoting some sort of anti-intellectualism in which just shut off your brain and just go. That's not what he's saying here. He's providing them comfort. He's saying to them, don't panic. He's saying, don't fret about this. Don't repeatedly rehearse and stay up all night wondering, but stay calm, remain calm. And he says, he grounds this in the fact that he says, I will give you a mouth and wisdom. The promise of giving a mouth sounds strange, but it's reminiscent of Exodus 4 when Moses is at the burning bush and he's giving, you remember this, God his excuses for why he should not be the one to go talk to Pharaoh. And God tells him there and promises him, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. So he's promising his people here wisdom to withstand their prosecutors. And once again, we see this play out in the book of Acts. We see the wisdom with which the Lord's people would answer their accusers. And in some cases, even leaving them with nothing to say. Again, the tendency to, when thinking about being called to account is to worry about every word, to anticipate every argument and every counter-argument, and to know exactly what it is we're going to say, and if this happens, I'll... And that's exhausting, that kind of thing. It's, how, how, it would be impossible to live normally if you're just trying to figure out all the possible things that could possibly happen and what we might have to say. The sleeplessness this would cause. And this calls us, I think, to, to put an end to that. And to know that the Lord will be with us. He'll be with His people. And He will help in that hour. And again, this is not... I don't think this means that we just, this is licensed to just spend our days sitting on the couch now uh, because we'll just be granted all kinds of new insight at the time and we'll just wow everybody. Uh, Peter tells us uh, that we should be ready, we should be prepared to give an answer, right? to give a defense for the hope that we have. And so it, to balance these two things, I think Jesus is Again, giving comfort to believers who are living their lives, who are seeking to know the Lord through His Word, who are seeking to put off sin and put off righteousness. They're seeking to follow the Lord as best they can and to trust in Him. He's providing comfort for those people to know that when the day comes and they're called to task, He will be with them. And he says, don't worry about that time. The promise that the Lord is always with us is of great comfort, and it should be of great comfort as we consider testifying, whether it's in the hour of persecution or any other time. This is a reason to rest and go boldly to such an occasion. The Lord will be with us. Persecution is a chance to witness 
And the Lord is saying he will be with us, he will help us. And so we're to be prepared, we're to be trusting him as we go, trusting him when that day arrives, when those moments come. Fourthly, the Lord prepares us to endure persecution by telling us that we can expect it to come from anywhere. So verses 16 and 17. He says, You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Jesus Jesus says the disciples will be del delivered up by those who are closest to them, family members and friends. It's a difficult and disturbing truth. It's a hard saying. It's difficult, but one thing it should not be is completely surprising. Do you remember back in chapter 12, Jesus has told us that his coming, you bring division even in homes, between parents and kids, set in opposition to one another, this would be a reality for many of Christ's followers. As Jesus warns us that even those closest to us may be the ones to hand us over, it shows us that this can come from anywhere. Right? It's not just way out there that persecution comes from. It's not just by people maybe far away or just outside of there, people we don't know, people who don't know us at all. It's not just lofty kings and rulers who will be upset. It'll be those closest to us, Jesus says. He says in verse 17, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. It can come from anywhere. And I think this is perhaps, this verse 17, being hated by all, perhaps slightly, hyperbolic. It's uh, certainly not true that he's not saying every single individual in the history of the world or on the planet right now is going to hate you. In Matthew, it's, it says you will be hated by all nations, which again, I think suggests this sense that no matter where you go, no matter where you are, you will find people there who will despise your message and despise you. That ultimately, again, what Jesus is talking about here, persecution that will come, is unavoidable. All types of people, friends or enemies, here or there, this nation or that nation, it can come from anywhere. There will be people who oppose Christians, and this is true today all over the world. And notice in verse 16, it also says that some of you they will put to death. So again, the persecution Jesus is talking about and warning about for some will result even in death. This might not seem very uplifting. This might not seem very encouraging. But the, the reality is the Bible teaches this frequently. And if we consider any of the heroes of the faith, we will see that they suffered often greatly, much persecution. The reality is we tend to think that we should be living right now as Christians in peacetime and rest. Again, sort of this idea of the victorious Christian life, the person who's untouchable on top of the world, nothing harms them, everything goes their way, after all, God's on their side. 
even if we don't quite think that way, we still tend to think or live as if everything should go easy for us and go well for us. When in fact, the Bible everywhere tells us that while we, yes, we rest in Christ's finished work on our behalf, we no longer strive to try to earn God's favor on our behalf. We're resting that Christ has perfectly earned our redemption. We can relax in that. We trust in that. We rest there. That is true. But we are nevertheless soldiers of Christ. And the Bible everywhere uses army warfare imagery to describe the Christian life. And so it's better to be prepared for what's coming rather than having it sugar-coated for us. Better to be soldiers who understand the nature of the battle than to be unaware and then all of a sudden get slammed. Some of the worst massacres in military history are from an underestimating or an you know, in, in ignorance of the strength of the enemy forces. We didn't know they had that many people. We didn't know they had those types of weapons, etc. It ends very, very badly. And in the morale goes bad as soon as things get hard. But you prepare those soldiers that this will be very difficult and very dark. And it helps prepare them for the battle. And here we have the captain of our salvation preparing his troops for what we're going to face. And we can hear what he says, and we can count the cost, and we can engage. If we remember that our final rest and our eternal rest, while in one sense we enter it now, and we are resting in Christ, our ultimate rest is still yet to come. And if we can remember that and fix our eyes on that, and remember that this life now is in fact still a battle. It will help us think rightly and prepare ourselves to suffer for Christ's sake. We're to fortify ourselves with this knowledge. And to hear the commander, the Lord, preparing his troops. And so we should not be, again, not, not to be shocked when opposition comes. And when it comes from seemingly unexpected or surprising places, it can come from anywhere. It can come from religious people, your religious people, churchgoers, family members, co-workers, people we don't know, people high up, people, anywhere. We move to somewhere else, it, it can happen there. The Apostle Paul received abuse everywhere he went. And he received it from pagans, he received it from Jews, he received it from philosophers, he received it from tradesmen. Jesus prepares us for this. He prepares us by telling us it can come from anywhere. And then finally, briefly, fifthly, the Lord prepares us to endure by promising ultimate deliverance through endurance. He promises an ultimate deliverance through endurance. And this is the part I think we have to grasp. And if we can grasp this, the rest of what I've said, we can, we can stomach, we can face that if this part is true. Look at verse 18. But... This is a lot of difficult news to swallow, but he says, But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. 
Now that promise of not a hair on your head will perish, that might seem odd or strange, given that he just said at the end of verse 16 that some of you, they, they will kill. He has just said some are going to be put to death for their faith. And now he says not a hair on your head will perish. Well, this promise is pointing ultimately to the ultimate and eternal deliverance for believers. That eternal life is ours, no matter what might play out in our lifetime here on earth. The 70, 80 years or less that we have on this earth. It is understanding that man's raging cannot separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That no matter what man might do to us, God will keep us and bring us safely into his kingdom. It's similar to what Jesus says in John eleven twenty five when he says there, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He asks Martha, do you believe this? It is the truth that neither tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, again, can separate us from the love of God. When you think of when Paul wrote Timothy towards the end of 2 Timothy, one of his last writings, at least ones that have survived, he knows Paul as he's writing. He says, the time of my departure has come, in the last chapter of 2 Timothy. He's imprisoned, he knows He's sure this time he's not getting out of it. He's going to be put to death. He's going to die. The time of my departure has come. Martyrdom is coming his way. And yet a few verses later he says this assurance to Timothy, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. The Bible doesn't promise us deliverance from persecution, as if it will not come our way, but it promises deliverance as we go through persecution. Paul is saying there, he knows he's about to be persecuted and killed, and yet, ultimately, the Lord will keep him safe and bring Paul into his heavenly kingdom. And he exhorted other believers after he'd been stoned and went about traveling that through many trials and tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I think of Jesus' words earlier in Luke that not to fear man who after killing you can then do nothing more to you, but rather we are to fear God who after killing you has the authority and power to send you to hell. Right? Not to fear man, he acknowledges they have the ability and power to kill you, but ultimately to fear God. And part of this promise here is that by your endurance, you will gain your lives in verse 18. Enduring persecution, enduring such suffering, when all you have to do is just renounce something, just renounce Christ, just stop preaching that gospel, just stop saying those words. To endure death only makes sense if there's something much more valuable than our own physical lives 
at stake. In a, in a twist that is complete folly to this world, Jesus tells us that enduring even to death for his name's sake will result in life. Now, it is gloriously true that all who are actually and truly born again will persevere to the end. Uh, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is a wonderful and comforting truth. So one might ask, if that's so, why bother making a statement like this, that by your endurance you will gain your lives? Well, just very briefly, these statements, statements like this, are part of the means that God uses to cause His regenerate children to reach the end, to persevere. That those who have the seed of regeneration within hear these statements about persevering to the end, and it has the effect of then causing us to desire to press on, to desire to push through the temptation to give in to the world and to sell out our Lord and to turn back. Again, back in John 16, read earlier, Jesus tells us in verse 1 why he's telling us about men who will hate us, why he's saying these things to us. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. God uses means to accomplish his purposes. And one of the means by which he encourages us, prepares us, and will see us through to the end is by encouraging us in his word to do just that, by holding forth the joyous end of eternal life in Christ Jesus and calling us to endure to the end. So Jesus prepares us to endure persecution by promising us that in the ultimate sense, not one of our hairs will be harmed. Not one of our hairs will ultimately perish. When history has run its course, believers in Christ will be in perfected, resurrected bodies, eternally with the Lord. And that is ultimately what Christ is pointing to here. That in no ultimate or eternal sense can any man alter that reality for the one who is in Christ Jesus. So in light of that, he's saying, endure to the end. We are called to endure suffering here, but the eternal weight of glory that awaits far exceeds anything that we would lose here on earth, including our very own lives. And this is the essential outlook that we must have. We must set our eyes on eternity that we might finish our races well. That when the pressure comes, we would not bow to it. We don't know. We don't know what the whole future holds for any of us. But again, a society that we live in is moving further and further into hardened rebellion against God Almighty. It's clear that we are in a land that is under judgment. And we must take these words of Christ to heart. And we must fix our eyes on eternity. And in so doing, fortify our minds for whatever 
might come our way. Whatever form persecution will take. And may we be fully convinced of the eternal promises of God. That ultimately, not a hair of our head will perish. And that by our endurance, we might gain our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that these are difficult words to hear as the thought of suffering is unpleasant. And yet, Father, when we think of the the grace that you have shown us in Christ, that though we have a sin that deserves an infinite penalty, you have looked down in compassion and sent Christ to die and to provide us with a righteousness that we could not possibly attain on our own. When we remember this, when we are thinking rightly, when we are hearing your word, when we think of the eternal inheritance that you have prepared for your people, it is worth any amount of suffering. When we think of Christ the captain of our salvation, who himself suffered much from the hand of sinners. May we strengthen our weak knees and be filled with much courage. I pray that you would be working endurance in our hearts, that you would be helping us to love not our lives, even unto death, if that was necessary. That in the meantime, even now, we would not fret or worry what would happen when that time comes, but we would remember that you will be with us and to take courage in that. Father, help us to, to be far more concerned about you than anyone else, what anyone else might say or think. Father, forgive us for the ways we have failed in this. Renew our strength and courage. Help us to Fix our eyes on Christ. Help us to rise early or stay up late reading your word and seeking to know you and seeking to renew our minds in the truth of your word. Father, we need so much help and so much grace. So we pray for that. We ask you for that. We pray that you would work good things in us for your own glory, that this would be for our joy. Father, help us to get to the place where we are are confident that these words are true, that we are okay with suffering loss for the sake of Christ. Father, we, we just commit ourselves to you. And Lord, we, we do just pray, as you've told us to, for our rulers, for our governing authorities, that, that we would be able to live peaceful, quiet lives in godliness, dignified in every way. As this does please you, that we would be able to worship you as you call us to, that we'd be able to proclaim your gospel as you call us to without 
threat of significant persecution. So we do pray for, for peace and for mercy on this nation. For those who don't know you, that you would draw many more to yourself. So Father, we, we just we give you praise, we give you thanks. I pray that we would be able to go forth in joy. Uh, even as we consider these, these truths and these weighty matters, that we would be uh, prepared in our minds and, and willing when need arises to suffer for your name's sake. Father, you are good. We thank you for these words. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.